Praise God for the, uh, the amazing people that he sends us to lead us in worship. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, team, for leading us so well this morning. Praise you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in James chapter 4 this morning, continuing our series uh, in the study of the book of James. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The words will be on the screen here. But James chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning, uh, looking at verses 1 through 12. And uh, if there's ever a, a moment you want to be in a sermon, it's a sermon on conflict, and that's what we're talking about. And I know that none of you have conflict in your own lives, and so this will not be applicable, but in, uh, in the potential, um, in your future, when you might encounter conflict, James has a word to speak to us and how we view ourselves and how we view ourselves in the midst of the conflicts of life we face. So James chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? You ever ask yourself that question? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly so that you may spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it uh, to be no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that it might dwell in you, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil uh, against the law and judges the law. But if you are the judge of the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you that you speak right into the human condition. And all of us can think of moments of conflict in our lives. We, are, we maybe have walked out of a conflict, or for some of us, uh, we, there's a conflict waiting for us when we get home or when we get to work. There's conflicts that we engage in in life. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be people that would rightly understand your word and would rightly have a changed heart when we walk into those moments that could be contentious. And Lord, the Christians of the world have not always had a good track record with how we deal with conflict. So Lord, I pray that we'd be different people. I pray that we'd be ones that handle conflict well, that in a way that honors you. In order to do that, we need the power of your spirit. So Lord, we pray, spirit, come. Make our hearts alive, make our hearts soft so that we can be the people you need us to be so that we can do the things you're calling us to do. It's in your name we pray, amen. 
Well, I remember early on a fight my kids had. Now, I have four kids, um, a 11-year-old daughter, Peyton, a uh, 9-year-old son, Jesse, a, uh, uh, sorry, 9-year-old son, Micah, a 7-year-old son, Jesse, and a 5-year-old daughter, Juliet. Uh, those are my children. Um, you can check with me later on. Uh, and, and I remember a moment when Micah was probably about three years old and Jesse was almost two years old. And we were, this weekend, we were going through um, my iPhone and just looking at old photos and old videos and just different things. And, and I remember a moment when Jesse was sitting on the couch and Micah is sitting on the couch and there's music playing. And Micah, when he was young, he would grab spatulas and those spatulas would be his guitar. And so he would have a great time and he'd be going crazy with the guitar, the music's going, and it's something like, uh, I don't know, what they're, they're, it's like Move It, Move It from uh, uh, whatever movie that is. Anyway, so... The, Madagascar, there we go, and uh, thanks, thank, I need help um, preaching this, so this is good. Uh, and, and so, so he's, like, he's like playing, dancing the song, playing his guitar, and then Jesse, his younger brother, reaches for the spatula. And the Micah takes this back, and I'm in the kitchen like getting dinner ready, and he gets the spatula and swings it across his brother's head, slicing it open, and suddenly I hear screaming, and I look over, and it's Micah screaming. He's on the couch like, ah, and his little two-year-old brother is just set there on the couch, like just dumbfounded with blood coming down his face. Now, this time, this particular weekend, Hillary uh, was working in Katy. We were living in College Station. She was working in Katy. So I'm alone with three children, blood streaming down the face, one of them screaming, and I'm like, Micah, you have to shut your mouth because you're not even bleeding. You're sad over nothing, right? And I look at this bleeding child. I'm like, what do I do? And, and, and. We survived, we made it. I called a friend and she's a mom with young daughters or, and uh, she helped me get my kid to the ER, whatever. And I look at that moment and I say, I look at this and I go, man, kids are horrible creatures, right? <laughs> I mean, they fight over the smallest things, right? But if we are honest with yourself, that little tension, that little fighting of, hey, give me what's mine doesn't stop when you age out of four. It doesn't. In fact, if you look at church history, we would see that uh, we are not ones, Christians, that, that always respond rightly in moments of conflict. The church, Christians, have been, have been known for conflict throughout history, even in the early church. We're going to study the book of Acts uh, in the fall, in the spring, this next year, and we see in the early church, there's conflict. There's, there's converted Jews and also converted Gentiles, and so how do these people interact with one another? There's conflict in the early church. You see, um, as the church grows and it becomes, um, it becomes more kind of mainstream in Europe, there's a moment when, when the Romans split from the Greek Orthodox, and you can see in Europe, there's been so many wars fought over faith over Christianity, brothers fighting against brothers, people within the Christian faith fighting against one another. And we can say like, oh, well, those, those people back there, that's, that's crazy that they would do that. But we know that's true here. In our own world, in our own American history, there has been um, splits over faith, brothers fighting against brothers, sisters fighting against sisters, Christians that conflict within the community. And we see this all the time. There's, there's worship wars, like what type of worship are we going to do? There's carpet wars. What kind of carpet are we going to have in the auditorium? There's, there's Bible translation wars. I was unaware of this, but apparently there's some people that think we should only use a certain version of the Bible, and they don't like the people that use other versions of the Bible, and so there's this contentious attitude on that. All of us, people within the context of Christ, have this history of, of fighting within it, and there's something wrong with that. 
17th century Jewish philosopher Spinoza observed this. He says, I've often wondered that persons who make the boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. It's fascinating. 17th century Jewish person just looking at Christians, he says, what you espouse is love and joy and patience with one another. But as we look at lots of Christians, we can see that is not what's coming out. What is the miss? What's going on? And it's to that issue that James is going to give us the answer. And the order, the, the outline for this morning will look like this. There's going to be um, the source of our conflict, a deeper diagnosis of the conflict, a solution, and signs of life. So we're going to look at the source of conflict, a deeper diagnosis of the conflict within us, the solution that he offers. And we're going to see he offers a sign of life. How do you know that the solution is working within you? So it begins with looking at, first of all, the source of conflict. And he asks it in a question in verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? He asks the question, hey, what causes the, the drama? What causes the dissension? What's happening within the community? And, and he asks the question, he uses these interesting words. The word quarrels could be used to, to wage war or to be in a protracted conflict. He's like, what causes these wars within the community? He uses the word fights, um, which means a clash or a struggle. He says, so what causes the wars and the struggles against you? And then he, he kind of gives this diagnosis. He's almost expecting an answer. He's like, why are you fighting with one another? And it's almost like he's expecting them to respond. Like, well, that person said that thing, or this person is like this, or, or, or I just don't like that one. He's like, he's like looking for an answer. But what's fascinating is that he doesn't actually give what the literal conflict is. He doesn't list it. He doesn't say within this church community they were actually fighting over this thing. Because as you go on long enough, you realize the conflict that arises isn't the real issue. And it's not just that the carpet wasn't what we wanted or the, or the thing wasn't what we wanted. It's not that. He's like, there's something else going on. He doesn't list the conflict because there's a deeper issue to the conflict. He says this. He gives the diagnosis. This is the source of your conflict. Is it not your passions that are at war within you? He says this. Your passions. And in Greek, it's the word hedone. It's where we get our word hedonism. It's, it's, there's passions, there's, there's illicit pleasures that you want, and that's what's causing the fight. And, he, and look where he points to the issue. He says, he says there's passions, there's desires that you have, and where do they stem from? He says they're at war within you. That word for war within you is, is the Greek word that means that there's an army encamped around in you. He says, what causes the fight? He's like, it's like there's a little army that's at war in you, and it's your passions that you see explode out here. He says it this way. He says, the source of every conflict is not the external issue. The external issue is just an opportunity for that internal war to explode into 
He's like, every fight that you have, every drama that you face is simply an, an, an opportunity for that war within you to come out and speak into. And that's so fascinating to think about it that way. Why do I experience the conflict around me? He says this, it's because there's a fight within you. And most of us, we don't want to admit that. Because most of us assume it's the environment that's our problem. It's because growing up, it's because of your siblings. Like they were the problem, right? So you can remember like when you were in junior high and in high school, like those tensions within your family got pretty intense and you got to fight. And, and, and your whole family were so excited when you moved out, out of the house and moved off to college. They were like, yeah, I think we all need some space here, right? And then you moved off to college and you got roommates. And what you realized is that washing dishes was still gonna be an issue, right? Like there was still gonna be some fight over whose dirty dishes are these or who's gonna take out the trash. You realize that getting out of that environment with your family, all of a sudden, you just created a new conflict in this new space. And then you're like, well, well, man, I can't wait to get married. Because then once I'm married, I won't have to deal with these losers that I'm living with because they're insane. Um, I'll be married with this person and then all conflict will go away once I'm married, right? And all the people laughing are the married people. <laughs> it's nervous laughter, you notice. Uh, and, and they're married, and they're like, okay, all of that conflict will go away once I'm in this new place. And, and suddenly you get with that person and you realize you're conflicting over similar issues, similar things. And he says, all of these happen within you. And every new environment you walk into, it's not that the conflict goes away. It's almost like we're carrying the conflict with us. It's like there's a war here and there's just a new opportunity for it to explode into. And he says this, what causes the fights? What causes the fights? He says there's unmet desires within you. He says you have desires that are unmet. He says you desire and do not have so you murder. It's like you want something. You have a passion for something and it's unmet. You don't get it. And so, and so you murder. And so in this church, are they actually having moments of murder? He probably wouldn't be writing this way if there was actually a murder going on. But, but it's, a, it's a murder of words. It's a murder of looks. Like we can, we can, we can destroy someone's reputation by just looking or just speaking, there's, there's ways we tear one another down. We give like that evil eye or whenever they walk into the room, we're just like, ugh, that person, and walk out. Like there's all of these ways that we subtly hurt one another. And he says, he says, you desire and do not have, and so you murder the reputation. He says, you covet, you want. The word covet is like that deep heart longing and you want something that someone else has but you cannot receive it so you cannot acquire it, obtain it. So you fight and you quarrel. And he says this, you have all of these wants that are going unmet, that are in you and that's what's causing the explosion out there. Everything that's not met here that I want is causing that explosion out there. And so we tear one another down, we give people evil looks, we move to a new place thinking that once I move to this new place, then all this will go away. And James is saying, no, 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 the issue isn't out there primarily. It's right here in you. And then he goes on to say this, and even if you were to get what you want, it wouldn't satisfy your needs. Even if you got it. Look what he says in verse three. 
He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly so that you could spend it on your own motives. He says, here's the, here's the problem. First of all, you, you do not have because you do not ask. The first thing is this. Um, you want something, but many of you aren't even going to God for it. Like you have this desire for this thing, but you're not even going to God. You're not even going to the source who could actually meet the need. You're not even going to God. You ask and do not receive because you're not even asking God for the things that you want. And secondly, the reason you don't get what you want is because you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Like you're going to God, some of us, and we're praying for these things and God's saying no because if he was to say yes, it would just be about feeding our own wrong, misplaced desires. And that's the issue. The source for every one of us is this internal war and we want things to fuel our pleasures. And he says, everything just starts here. And if, even, if God was even to say yes, the problem with saying yes is that it wouldn't fix what's in here. All you would do is take those gifts and use them on yourself. And those are the deep issues. That's the cause of every other conflict. And if you were just to think about your life and think about how you've walked through life, you could trace this through your life, that envy, coveting, jealousy is never about the other person. It's never really about them. It's always something in here. And you can think about it, just like trace back through your lifetime, just go back to junior high. Go back to when you were in junior high and you were jealous of that person. Maybe he was, she was cuter or he was more athletic or he was funnier and you were just like, I just, I, I go into that moment and you're just like, oh, I hate that girl, I hate that guy. Like, why do you hate them? Because, because they have what I want, right? And then you move to the next stage. You move to the next stage. You move to, to high school and there's some time in there and you realize that some of those people that you were jealous of in junior high they're not even there anymore you move to a new town or a new place or they moved away and and they're not even there but that jealous heart didn't go away it just transferred to a new person or a new situation and so you're there in high school and you're like, I'm jealous about these people for these different reasons they're smarter they're more attractive they have more opportunities than you and then you go to college And if you go into college, you realize that that those things that you wanted in these different stages, you no longer want here. You're chasing different things. And then you're like, well, I just need to get out to work. I need to get in the working world. And you say, okay, and now I'm in the working world. And those same desires of envy and wanting to rise in prominence and popularity, they just followed you to a new place. Now it's in that work environment. You want to climb that ladder or make that sale or outdo them. And so suddenly this coveting, this jealousy, this I want to spin it on me, all it did was move objects. And every place I end up, what I realize is that jealousy follows me every place I get. And James is saying yes, those wars in there are just given opportunity to explode out here. And you do it with your kids. We do it with our kids. You move to a new town, and the things that you may have wanted for your kids, they may have been good. And all of a sudden, you move to a new place, and you're like, you see these people with these different things, and you're like, I just want my kid not to be the best kid ever, just better than yours. You know, like that's... That's it, like my kid doesn't be the smartest, just smarter than yours, right? 
My kid doesn't need to drive the best car, just one that's better than yours. My kid doesn't need to be more athletic, just more athletic than yours. Doesn't need to be the smartest kid, just smarter than yours. And so we do this thing, and what we realize, the, the insidiousness of conflict is that it follows us to every place. And every broken relationship or every hurt feeling, James is saying, you could probably pare that down to some peace within each one of us. And every moment is just an opportunity for that war in here to explode out there. And then what James doesn't, he doesn't stop there. For some of us, that's a little bit uncomfortable. Kevin, um, I'm just visiting today, and that's very, very uncomfortable. Welcome to church. Um, And it gets worse. It gets worse. Because James is going to say, actually, it's it's not even that issue alone. Every situation is an opportunity for that internal war to explode, but there's a deeper problem within all of us, within me too. And it's this. The deeper source, and he uses shocking language to identify it. Verse four. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He uses this shocking word. He says, you adulterous people. And we don't even use that word. Like, we're not even comfortable using that word in our context. Adultery, like, we, would, we don't even want to use that. We would say something like this, like, like, he is seeing a woman who's not his wife. Or we would say, like, oh, she's dating a married man. We wouldn't even use the word, they're committing adultery. Like, we wouldn't even use that word because that word is shocking. And James is using that purposely. It should shock these people awake for a couple of reasons. One, Religion in the ancient world um, oftentimes was sexualized. It was, it, was, it, was, it was pretty gross in the ancient world. So, so it, it included that within the ancient religion. But more than that, the image over and over and over again given of God to his people is one of a husband and a wife, of one who loves them and is in intimate relationship with them. It uses it um, of a God in the Old Testament describing himself as a, as a husband to his to his bride, um, Israel. He'd also use it in the New Testament um, as the bride of Christ, that, 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 the, that Jesus is the, is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. It's supposed to be an intimate relationship. And then he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? Now, what is he not saying? He's not saying that you can't have friends that are not believers. That's not what he's saying. The word friendship in this context is this intimate, close, connected relationship. This intimate love relationship. And he says you can't love the world and love God. You can't love two at the same time. 1 John 2 says it this way. Do do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. He says, look, what's happening is that you are dating the world and trying to be married to God. And that's not a healthy relationship. You're flirting with all of these other things and trying to say, I'm committed to God And and that's the problem. And it says that God is jealous in that situation. 
Now, some of you, when you hear the word that, well, God is jealous, well, what does that mean? Like, and that sounds, for some of us, petty. Like, you just, you just kind of told us not to be jealous. What do you mean that God is jealous? Like, what, is, what does that mean? Well, jealousy in the context in which it's speaking about a God is, is different than our jealousy. Jealousy um, in our context is, I want what you have. Like, I'm desiring what you have. God's jealousy is this, I want the best for you. He is jealous like, like a husband to a wife. If a husband does not want a wife to date other people, that's not unrealistic or petty. We would say that's healthy. That's commitment. That's loving. That's good. That is a good jealousy. And what God is saying is, I want the best for you. I want what's best in your life. I am jealous. He says, I'm jealous that the spirit would dwell within you. I, I'm jealous for your best. And when you start pursuing these other things, it only leads to destruction within you. Augustine says it this way. He calls it disordered loves. He says, when our loves are out of order, that causes all of the the challenges that we face. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of God, describes this, and he quotes Augustine in a sense. He says, you harm yourself when you love anything more than God. Now, how does this work? He says, if you love your children more than you love God, you will essentially rest your need for significance and security in them. You will need too much from them to succeed or be happy and to love you. That will either drive them away or crush them under the weight of your expectations because they will never be the ultimate source of your happiness. No human being can measure up to that. Or instead of loving, you'll love your spouse or romantic partner more than God. And the same thing will occur. If you love your work or career more than God, you will, ne- you will necessarily, out of love of them, push your family aside, your community, your own health, and that will lead to your own physical or relational breakdown because you'll pursue your work. If you love anything more than God, it will harm the object of your love. You harm yourself. You harm the world around you. And you end up deeply dissatisfied and discontent. He says, when our loves go out of order, I try to take created things and make them ultimate things. And when I try to take created things and make them ultimate things, what I show is that I love the world, I don't love God, and I destroy the world because I'm trying to pull from them. But Augustine says you gotta have your loves in the right order. We love God first above all else. We develop an intimate relationship with God and then everything else goes in order. Because even if God was to give you what we're fighting over, it would ultimately leave us unsatisfied. I remember uh, when I was a youth pastor, um, I would take kids to different youth events. And so we took kids uh, to the bowling alley, which was uh, taking junior high kids to the bowling alley was just like chaos, ready to happen, right? And so all the kids are competing against each other in bowling, and that's fun. And then they would go to the arcade, and they would do stuff there, and that was fine. But I remember one moment, all the boys centering around one of these machines that had the claw to grab little toys, right? So they're all there, and they're all wanting whatever toy it is in this little claw machine. And they're like arguing with one another and fighting. And I remember one kid, he spent no less than $20, $25 in coins 
putting it into this machine, trying to get this claw. Everything was just quite out of its grasp, you know? Like, it's just so painful to watch this kid. And I remember standing there on the side going, y'all are just dumb. There's no way this prize is worth the amount that you put into the machine. It's impossible for those to be equal, right? And even when you get it, you're not even gonna want it. Even if you were to pull that out. And so eventually, every one of them walked out with something. And here's what was so funny. When we finally left the bowling alley, some of those kids that had wasted all of this money on these items left the item at the bowling alley. I was like, you, you didn't even know what you wanted. You thought this was your heart and soul. And when you got it, you realized it's not. No created thing can meet your ultimate desires. And he says that when you run and you're committing adultery, you're running to all these things. And the problem is it'll never satisfy. Every fight you fight won't satisfy when it's rooted in these internal wars within you. And so then he gives us a solution. Here's the solution. Verse six, but God gives more grace. Oh, that's one of the greatest verses in this passage. But God gives more grace. The grace of God is the most significant thing you can ever experience and imagine. Grace is unmerited favor. It's getting not... It's, just, it's not just not getting what you deserve. It's getting above that what you don't deserve. It's the big safety net. Um, years ago when they were building the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, um, they, they saw that many people were, as they were working, they were terrified and they were falling off to their deaths. And it, was, it, was, it was tragic. And so what did they do? They put in a huge net underneath the bridge and suddenly they had less injuries, less people falling even though they were in the same environments. They had less people falling off because they knew there was safety right below. That's the grace of God. He says you can't out-sin God. There's no, there's no one that can run so far from God that he's not willing to pull you back. That is the grace of God. And he says he opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Every one of us have run far from God. And he says, look, I'm ready. I'm ready with my arms to pull you back in. I will graciously bring you to myself. And he says, receive the grace of God. And the perfect picture of the grace of God is this. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus Christ to die in our place for our sins, to bring us in relationship with our heavenly father into a loving family, into the intimacy you long for. He says, you have the grace of God ready for you. And then he says, I want you to then submit to God. Verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we receive the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ and then we submit ourselves to God. And as soon as I throw that word submit, there's probably like 30 of you in this room that are just like, ah, I hate that word. The word's evil. And it's probably because of this, because you've been asked to submit to people that were unjust, unloving, and uncaring to you. I don't wanna submit because I'm afraid of what submission will bring to me. He doesn't say submit to just anyone, he says, submit to God. And you submit to God, and when you submit to his leadership in your life, that's the place you need to be. 
And when you can submit to someone who loves you enough and cares enough about you, you can follow their path. And that's what he's saying. Submit to God and let God lead your life. And if you submit to the right person, it will lead you in the right direction. He says, yes, submit yourself to God. I remember I had to learn this in college. In college, I ran track in college. And we had um, the first semester uh, uh, um, an inadequate coach. He did not coach us well. He did not lead the team well. There was a lots of dysfunction in the whole team. And then they brought in a new coach. And he asked us, he brought us in, he asked us, okay, what do you want to achieve? And, and then he started laying out these plans. Okay, if you want to achieve your goals, if you want to see success in this realm, you're going to have to follow these plans. And here's what was fascinating. The people that chose to follow the coach were able to succeed and achieve. The people that refused to submit to coach, they were soon no longer on the team. And what God is saying is this, look, you submit your life to me. You submit your hopes to me. You submit your future to me. You submit your desires to me. And I will lead you where you most want to go. And it's challenging to do this. Because sometimes God will ask you to prioritize things that you don't want to prioritize or deprioritize things that you want to prioritize. I remember when I was in college, my freshman year, I'm behind this coach and we go to the pin relays and I'm running the steeplechase at the pin relays, one of the biggest meets of, uh, in the United States for track athletes. I'm running there and my coach tells me this, Kevin, go out in last place. Now, if you're trying to win a race, where do you not go? To the back. And I'm like, last place? He's like, trust me, go to last place. And I'm running the steeplechase. It's a long distance race over hurdles and a water pit. And so the gun blows and everyone starts running. And I'm like, all right, all right. And so, and so I start following all the way to last place. This biggest race I've ever been to, last place. Not what I was planning on doing. And it went, it went kind of bad at first. My, my head coach, uh, Coach Bubba Thornton, as the race is going, he sees his runner, the lone Texas guy running in last race, and, he's, and he doesn't even face the track anymore. He just turns his back to the track and like close, crosses his shoulders, crosses his arms. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to start running. And I, I continue to run, and, and, and I'm in last place. And he goes, okay, one more lap. And it's a seven and a half lap race. I, I stand last place again. He goes, okay, I pick off a couple guys. And I start working my way. He goes, okay, a little more, a little more. A little more. And what seemed stupid at the start, what I realized I was going to run one of the best times of that year by simply following his instructions. Here's what God's saying Submission to me doesn't always look like the right solution, but it will lead your life in the right direction. It is not always easy, but it is what's best. You submit yourself to me, and then you draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. He says, cultivate an intimate relationship with me. Draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Change your mind. Change your thoughts. Submit to me. Draw near to me. That means draw close. That means spend time in the word. Spend time in prayer. Draw near to God. And lastly, we humble ourselves. He says, be worn and meek. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. One of the greatest lessons you can learn in life is that humility precedes exaltation. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
No one comes to Christ on their feet. Everyone comes on their knees. We humble ourselves before God, and in his time, in his way, he will exalt us. At the tail end of this passage, he says, he gives this last little instruction to say, and how do you know it's working? How do you know that you're filled with the grace of God? That you're submitting to God? That you're cultivating intimacy with God? That you've got humble humility growing within you? How do you know? He gives the diagnosis, the signs of life in the last two verses. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge over it. He says, here's how you know that there's signs of life, that the spirit of God is working and changing your heart. Test how you talk about them. Here's how you know if God's changing your heart. How do you speak about other people? Is jealousy being rooted out of your heart and mind and life? How do I know? How am I speaking about them? So I want to give you three diagnostic questions as we close. The first is this. Can I not pick or belittle the success of someone else? Let me phrase that one more time. How do I know that humility, genuine change is happening in my heart? Can I not pick or belittle the success of someone else? And we, we kind of tend to do this. Like we see someone else successful and we're just like, oh yeah, that's because they're evil. Like that's why they're, they're being blessed. But can I not? Like, like can I not pick at them when they're successful? When that church grows, when that person gets that job opportunity, when that person gets married, when that person does that thing, can I not pick at their success? Secondly, can I not compare myself to them? Can I stop comparing? Comparing is the thief of all joy. Can I no longer compare? Thirdly, and this is how you know it's really working. Not only can I not pick, and not only can I not compare. Thirdly, can I celebrate the success of someone else without feeling bad about myself? Not only can I not say that thing about them, not only can I not compare myself to them, and that's really what he's getting at. You're judging God who's given them these things. He says, can I actually celebrate them? Can I actually look at this person who received what I wanted and celebrate the fact that they got it? This person that, that got this job that I wanted, can I actually look at their life and say, praise God that he gave them that? Can I look at this person that's getting married and maybe you've always wanted a spouse or, or you were divorced and you want to get remarried, all those different things, and you see your friends getting married, your family getting married, and they have what you wanted and you look at their life and you say, praise God that you received this gift. Or maybe you've wanted children and for whatever reason God hasn't been able to allow you to have children for whatever reason along the way and you see friends and family having babies and that, that creates a deep hole within you and I'm not trying to minimize that, that's big. But can you look at the lives of others that receive what you want to go? Praise God that they receive that. How do you know the Spirit of God is really working in you? When every moment that could be conflict 
I'm not looking at me. I'm not saying poor me. I'm seeing what God's doing in the lives of others. And I'm confident in who God has made me. And so I can celebrate what God is doing in them. Several years ago, um, I had to walk, I'm, I'm telling you this, like I had to walk through this myself. There was an individual that was getting a job opportunity that I wanted. And I so wanted that job opportunity. I thought I deserved it. I thought I was qualified, whatever. And God didn't give it to me. And it sent me in a bit of a spiral. And as I was finally coming out of it, there's lots of things that were happening in my own life. As I was finally coming out of it, it was almost like God was pressing on this. He says, you know the person that got that job. You've invested in their life. Can you celebrate what I'm doing within them? And at the moment, I was like, no, I would celebrate more what you were doing for me. (laughs) And then over time, there's been moments in life when I'm like, I really want that. And God says, no. Will you just trust me? Will you just love me? Is relationship with me enough for you? If I'm honest, I would say many times in life, the answer is no, absolutely not, God. You are not enough for me. And then God says, yeah, that's that's the issue. Let's talk about that. So I don't know what part of this message has, has hit you. For some of you, it's that there's conflict in and around your life. And it's constant. And what God is saying to you is this. It's time to stop blaming them for everything circling around you. It's time to start looking at the war in your own heart. Our prayer team is gonna be up here. For some of you, you need to come up and receive prayer, receive help because, because that conflict that's always going on, that chaos that seems to circle you is coming from this source within you. And so we need to do some hard work here. So come pray. For others of you, it's that you've never actually developed intimacy with God. And even when we use that word, it just sounds really weird. Intimacy with God, what does that mean? What does that look like? It means that you're drawing near to God and he's drawing near to you. And thirdly, some of us, the reason all of this chaos we're allowing to live in our life is because we've never actually come to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We've never actually come to Jesus Christ. And if that's you, that's the opportunity to come forward to our prayer team. Every one of us is sinners, are sinners separated from God. Every one of us runs our own way. Jesus comes to draw us into relationship with him and to heal the brokenness of our heart. You can simply pray a prayer with our team. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying for every one of my sins and receive forgiveness and restoration. That's available today. I don't know where you are, but we wanna pray alongside you and we wanna help you walk in freedom in life with the person of Jesus Christ, with your heavenly father. We pray. Lord, thank you.
for your word. Lord, thank you that you diagnose our issue and it's not a diagnosis we want to hear often. Um, Often I wanna point out the struggles of my own life and I wanna point fingers at other people that have caused it. And Lord, it's not that there's not other people to blame at times, but most of the time it's, it's how I respond. It's the war that wages within me that you want to heal me from. So Lord, if there are folks struggling with that internal war, that internal battle that is raging in their hearts, Lord, I pray they'd come forward. They receive forgiveness and healing and hope. Jesus, thank you that you stepped into history, into our conflict, and you brought peace. You are the Prince of Peace. Jesus, reign over this moment. Draw us near to you. Cleanse us through the power of your blood and restore us to life. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.